I'm Bianca Vivione, and this is Ask Viv. So welcome to episode six. I'm so excited about today's episode. It's the best episode that we've ever had. And I know that I say that about every episode, but we're halfway past the mark to 10. I always told myself that if I could do 10 episodes of this show, then something great and magical would happen. And I'm still not quite sure what that is, but I'm so much closer to that point than when I started. And you may be thinking like, oh, 10 episodes, that's not really that much. But if you've ever tried to do anything five times consistently, you understand just how difficult that is. Because when you first start a project, it's very easy to function off the momentum and excitement of the newness. But once you hit the third part or the fourth part of that project, you have to develop a certain discipline and consistency towards sticking with it. And it's even more important when people are actually looking forward to what you're doing. Because to be quite honest, when I first started this podcast, I thought, hmm, sure, I guess you could start an advice column. I suppose that you're qualified to give advice. But I was also functioning off the fear that I might not get any questions to answer. And my first episode, I had four questions, five questions in my inbox. And I said, okay, we'll take these. And now I have 20, 30 questions in my inbox. And I honestly can't believe the response that it's gotten. But I guess that that's the gift that consistency comes with, is that you don't really have to worry about something gaining momentum you just have to kind of keep your head down and do the work and I'm so excited to do the work honestly this has been one of my favorite projects that I've done in a long time because it's so community oriented and I think that the cool thing about Ask Viv is that you create a kind of collective trust when you one promise yourself that you're not going to make up any questions so I trust that I'm just going to get questions and two I trust that people are going to ask me about things that I care about and things that I know about because so much of the subject matter is question driven from other people and you all have to trust that I'm going to give genuine and thoughtful advice that comes from an honest place and so I value that and I'm so grateful to be doing this but I'm going to save my acceptance speech for episode 10 so we're going to move on to my thoughts for today and what I've been thinking about this week has been expectations when you set expectations for yourself it's so easy to forgive yourself and to give yourself more room for accommodation more time more space for growth always but we're not so quick to do that with other people and I've been thinking about if there's really any compatibility between expectation and unconditional love my sister asked me last week about what I thought about the quote the wise man wants nothing and I'm thinking about how interlinked wisdom and getting older is with accepting the reality that disappointment is natural disappointment is promised and it's consistent And so I'm wondering, how do I live in a way that I set standards for how I want to be loved and how I want to be treated in my life without tethering people to the constant policing and regulation of expectation? And I think, honestly, that that comes with building a sense of trust towards the people in your life that's so deeply rooted that you trust them to know what you need, you trust them to do right by you, and the times when they don't, you forgive them and love them anyway. And I know you're thinking, wow, that sounds really hard. And it actually just requires having fewer people in your life. Because the thing is, is that those sorts of marginal friends who are constantly disappointing you, they'll continue to do so and you'll continue to build resentment towards them. 
but those people that you're putting a lot of energy into and a lot of love into, a lot of times they just rise to the occasion. And if you really give them time, then they become the people that you trust them to be. And I think that doing so requires yourself to evaluate the standards that you set for yourself in friendship and ask yourself, am I patient with people? Do I give people time to grow after I require something of them? Are these expectations completely unrealistic or completely unfeasible for who this person is? And this applies to parents and boyfriends and sisters, everyone in our lives, because I think that when we label people certain things, we automatically tether them into expectations. I'll never forget when I was in the ninth grade and I had this teacher, Miss Jo, who's my literature teacher, and she was my favorite teacher, and I would always rush into her classroom to complain about something that my mother had done. I would say, my mother did this, or my mother forgot to do this, and Miss Jo would say, okay, Tell me that story again, but replace every time you said mom with your mother's name. And so I would say, Darlene did this or Darlene did that. And all of a sudden, I would turn my mother, whose label of mother comes with such gargantuan expectation, into a person and realize that one, the thing that she had done or faulted me on had not been that serious, and two, that I had held her to a completely unrealistic expectation that I would have never held my friend or myself. And so I think when you understand the people in your life as people and not as these standards that you have for romantic partner, parent, friend, boss, that you start to have an empathy that doesn't necessarily lower expectation, but it heightens your faith in people. And if at the end of the day there are people in your life who you say, okay, I have very high expectations, but I have no faith in your personality, then those are people who you need to reconsider your ties to. And so that's my thoughts for the week. So we're going to get right into these questions because you know that's my favorite part. Dear Viv, do you prefer to identify yourself as African American or Black? Please explain. This is a funny question because I had been thinking about this a lot because I just left the country, but I'm only African American when I'm not in the United States. When I'm in the United States, I'm black. And I say that because when you're here, people use African American as some sort of respectability title, but it doesn't actually really mean much. Because African American, I don't really believe is a name that we as a people chose for ourselves. I think that it came out of that sort of multicultural heritage celebrating 90s thing where people were trying to start talking about what it would be like if we treated people of color as human and so I think that people started to say oh these are going to be African Americans and Latin Americans and that's frustrating because it wasn't a name that we chose for ourselves as much as something that was imposed upon us to perpetuate this idea that racism was over we were in a post-racial society so instead I go by black when I'm in America because it's a name that black people chose for themselves during 70s liberation movements and the Black Panther movement. People were saying, I'm black and I'm proud. But obviously being black, which characterizes a collective and international experience beyond just American values, is something that is very powerful because it connects you to everybody within the African diaspora, whereas being African-American is a very nationalistic project that says we want black people to have pride in America, despite the fact that it continues fucks them over. 
But at the same time, when I go abroad, I realize just how unique the black experience is in America, and I'm proud to call myself African American, because a lot of people don't even know that African Americans exist. I mean, in all honesty, despite the fact that they consume so much of our culture, like when I was in Morocco, I heard people listening to Migos, and people would be listening to Beyonce, but yet have no idea that African Americans exist. And every time people would ask me, where are you from? Where are you from? I would say, oh, I'm American. And they said, no, what's your origin? Where are your parents from? And I said, America. And not only because our visage is different, because we have different faces because of the amount of miscegenation between black, white, Native American people in the United States, but also because we're a culture in and of ourselves. Like African American is different than being American, but it's also different than being Caribbean. It's different than being Jamaican and from the UK. It's different than being Senegalese or Liberian. And I think that we should be proud of that because we do create a lot of global culture. And so I think that being African-American has only come to mean anything when I'm outside of the United States. But when I'm inside of the United States, I'm black and on my worst days, I'm a nigga. Dear Viv, in episode five, you mentioned the state of hip hop is in decline. Can you expand on that? Who are your favorites? What do you think needs to happen for it to go back to the way it was? Well, I'm not really advocating for hip hop to go back to the way it was, but I say that it's a genre in decline because when you think about the advent of hip hop, it was really something that got its strength in representing a collective experience that had really been silenced in America, and that was black people in poverty. And it was telling stories about our community that we knew had existed, but nobody had really put words to, and definitely nobody had been celebrating. And so that came with the good and bad. You know, you had secret enclaves of pimp culture that were being talked about. You had hustlers and drug dealers and hoteps, and you had the old school and the new school. And then after a while, you had different regions that were being represented and stories were being told about how black people were living in LA and how that was so different than black people living in the deep south and how all of that was very different than people that were living in the north. The responsibility of hip hop was to reflect the reality of black Americans at any cost. And I think that's why hip hop has been so appropriated by other cultures and other countries because it's a vehicle for storytelling that's so grounded in reality. And I think that that doesn't mean that it's conscious or necessarily positive at any given moment. It just means that it's real. But when I say it's in decline, it's because hip hop is no longer reflecting a state of any reality as much as it's reflecting a state of irreality in which women are always hated, men are always rich, everyone needs to buy more things, everyone's friends are actually their enemies. And I don't really think that it's reflective of this time period. You have so many interesting social issues going on right now that are not at all being reflected in hip hop. And that's not to say that people need to be talking about the current political regime as much as there's a drug crisis going on in America that's not really being rapped about. And sure, rappers are always going to rap about doing drugs, but nobody's really rapping about what drugs do to them. And I think that there's just so much room for dialogue and a necessity for dialogue right now. And hip hop is just lazy because they're still functioning off the same assumptions that they started with when the genre was created. And they're not challenging any of those original assumptions. They're just trying to continually perpetuate them. People are like, oh, hip hop is homophobic. These people are homophobic. Hip hop has always been homophobic. And at the same time, hip hop has always been deeply homoerotic. And so there are certain things that are not addressed 
that are just understood and at this point it's just boring to listen to to be honest and i'm from the birthplace of trap like east atlanta and that trap was a genre that was so exciting when it first came out because it was giving you a look into a life that you otherwise had no access to or all of those niggas that used to stand in front of the gas station selling drugs now you actually were understanding what they were doing and it was entertaining and the beats were cool but i think that you just reached this point where there just has to be something else to say and you ask me who my favorites are to be honest i think that the only people who are really innovating hip-hop right now and i know this is an unpopular opinion are women when I listen to Baby Mother, Megan Thee Stallion, Cupcake, Jungle Pussy, all of these women are not only very proud of their sexuality, but they're talking about things. They're talking about motherhood and homelessness and what it's like to try to be a cool black girl in America and not be stifled by the things that are constantly trying to bring us down. And that's something that we haven't seen because for so long, a lot of people like Lil' Kim or Nicki Minaj, they were relegated to sex objects because that's the way that they make money in the rap industry. And so these women who are finding new avenues and new audiences and new way to talk about themselves in rap are much more interesting than the average drug rapper or even just the average conscious rapper who's talking about the same problems in the black community that they've been talking about for the last 20 years. And so, yeah, I think that in order for hip-hop to redeem itself, it's just going to have to get real, for real. Dear Viv, how do you feel about the Women's March? I have conflicting feelings about it. I 100% support the message. However, I also feel like a majority of protesters are white women, and I know the majority of white women voted for Trump. How can they try to be the solution when they are a part of the problem? Okay, well, you're better than me, because I definitely didn't support that Women's March. It's something I'm very suspicious of when people want to make these sorts of protests highly public and in a lot of ways highly corporate. It's sort of like, okay, you could get any black woman activist or community organizer to speak and you're getting Viola Davis or Scarlett Johansson. These are people who are literally worth millions of dollars. In what way could they represent the average woman or the average woman's struggle when at the same time they're part of the bourgeoisie and they prop up capitalism? It's not only inconsistent, it's hypocritical because it's like, sure, you can talk about sexual harassment in Hollywood, but are you going to talk about the misogyny and patriarchy of capitalism that underwrites all of Hollywood's business? No. But it's also like, where's the problems in the face of the working class women, the immigrant women who deal with sexual harassment and sexual violence on a day-to-day -day basis and can't say anything about it? Or how about that a lot of the women that were marching and were highly visible were figures in fashion? And like I said last time, how can you honestly call yourself a feminist working in fashion when over half of the fashion industry relies on the exploitation and underpayment of women? And so it just becomes a point when it is a charade. And I think for me, it's especially frustrating because I've been surrounded by empowering and beautiful women, black women and women of color my entire life who have done their generational share of labor and when I say that, I mean my grandmother was a social worker and my mother works with young mothers and domestic violence survivors and they've never been to a march or taken a picture with victims or held up the people that they've helped as some sort of trophy. They really kept their heads down and did the work. And I think that a lot of non-black people of color and white women constantly want 
the congratulation of a labor that's going to take a lifetime to do. And that's another thing I don't really think that people understand is that it's not about showing up to a march once a year. It's about donating your time to community organizations who are doing work for causes that you care about on a consistent and regular basis. And so I don't condone these gestures of corporate activism. I think that they're so empty and they're so offensive to people who have not only done the work, but a lot of times risked so much to do it. And these women, to be quite honest, are not risking anything. I wouldn't be surprised if this next Women's March next year has Mercedes-Benz as a corporate sponsor. It's embarrassing, and I hope that the young girls who do attend the march feel moved enough to commit on a regular basis to doing community organizations that help women in radical and empowering ways besides just showing up to a march once a year with vaginas painted on a sign. Dear Viv, my best friend told me about a year ago that he was an atheist and that he liked me, and I don't know what to do. I want him to know God and have a relationship with him, but I don't want to come off as pushy. I love him so much and I feel like he's running away from something. He's doing his own thing at the moment and I feel like he's afraid to date me too. My mind is everywhere. Well, this is obviously a two-part question, so I'm going to deal with it in two parts. Part one, you say that your best friend is an atheist and that you don't know what to do about that. I know that it's frustrating when you're a highly spiritual or religious person to want people to be that way too, but to be honest, it's something that you have very little control over. I have friends that are agnostic and atheist, and what I do is I pray for them, and I don't pray for their salvation because they're non-believers. I pray for them because I know that they're not praying for themselves, and that's something that is very important to me. But secondary to that, I talk to them often about my faith. They ask me, how are you doing? I'm like, surviving, thank God. And it doesn't matter if it moves them or not, because I know that faith is a comforting thing for me, and when I share it with other people, just telling them things are going to be okay, whether they attribute that to God or not, I know that I do, then they feel that comfort too, and that's important. You have to respect where people are in different spiritual processes because everybody has a different relationship to spirituality and religion. Some people for so long have been policed and hurt by religion, told that who they are is wrong and couldn't be right because of religion. And so it's difficult for a lot of times for people to separate God from the police or God from their parents or for whatever other reason. But you have to respect where people are in their different spiritual processes. And if you can't respect people's lack of faith and love them anyway, then you have to examine your own faith because you can't really be deeply spiritual if you don't believe in loving people despite what you perceive as their flaws or shortcomings because that's the treatise of literally every major spirituality on earth. Treat other people the way that you want to be treated or love people despite who they are not because of who they are. And part two to your question, you say that your best friend likes you, but is afraid to date you because he's doing his own thing at the moment. I would say be very weary of this relationship in the sense that I think over the last few years, men have started to understand the power and emotional ties that come with calling a woman your best friend and they've started to manipulate the titles so that they can get all of the privileges of romantic relationships without any of the responsibility and just say that they're doing their own thing and receive sexual romantic benefits emotional labor that is tied to the commitment of a relationship 
without actually having to because of the best friend title. And so I think that your best bet is to create boundaries and say, okay, I love you and I care about you, but you are my friend because that's what you call yourself. That's what you say you are. And that's a beautiful thing, but you're not going to get all of the benefits and affection of my emotional labor while just calling me your friend. I'm just going to leave you be and let you function and that will either make him acknowledge that he's been using this relationship to receive the benefits of being a best friend without any of the accountability of romance or he'll be deeply moved and tell you how he feels about you romantically and make that move. And for our last question, and this is a long one. Dear Viv, I'm 21 and I see myself as a very goal-oriented, driven, and independent young woman. I've been in a relationship for about two years. We had a rough start, but he got his act together and it's hard for me to imagine a better partner now after all the work I put in. He's willing to do anything to be with me and sees me as the center of his world, and he treats me well. I do not ever have to worry about him straying either. The problem is that I'm in school full time and I work and I have a lot of goals and projects I want to accomplish. Looking back, I see how much I've compromised and the ways I could have done a better job had I been single. I'd like to say that the love we have makes it worth it, and relationships take sacrifice to some degree in their nature, but something is telling me I should be single again. The thing is, he's older than me and more prepared to take on serious commitment, and I know that with all the work I've put in, he could make someone else really happy, and that terrifies me. Ooh, girl. I've been waiting for a while to answer this question because honestly, this was me. And this was not me once, this was me about three times over. And I'll have to say, and you're not going to want to hear this, but you have to leave him. And you have to leave him not only for your own sake or for freedom's sake, but for his sake. And I say that because if the only reason that you can justify a relationship is because you like the comfort and affection that somebody gives you and that you're scared to see them give it to somebody else and yet you no longer want the responsibility or the committal ties to that relationship, then you have to let them go for that person's sake because you can no longer say that that's love. That's just ownership and attachment. And I can tell that you're attached to this man and that you believe in some way that you own this man because you say that the product of who he is is a result of your hard work. And I think that this is something that is especially difficult for independent and goal-oriented women is that we often make men into pet projects and we pour time and money and sex and emotional labor into who these men are but a lot of times we don't do it out of love or seeing that person grow for the sake of love but because we have these issues with control in which we want to make people in our image we want people to be as good as us when we see potential in them and our deepest fear becomes not this person failing us but seeing some other woman reap the benefits of all of the labor that we've put in and I have to tell you that you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't be the single independent person that you want to be and then want him to wait around or be tethered to you just because you believe in some way that you're entitled to him. You, and this is something that's very difficult, and like I said, I've been in this exact situation, have to grow up and you have to let him go and let him find love in the ways that he deserves the same way that you're seeking self-love and success in the ways that you deserve. And it's a difficult thing to do. I was once in a relationship with somebody who I loved deeply, but I thought about the year that we were together 
And in that year, I didn't paint one portrait, I didn't write one essay, I didn't create one project because the deep comfort that he provided me put me in an artistic and professional complacency that I abhorred. And while I was afraid to let him go because he's such a loving person and a deeply comforting person, my want for my artistic nature and my freedom was greater than my fear of letting him go. And not only was it the best thing for me, it was the best thing for him too because I realized in a lot of ways he was also artistically complacent. And since then he's made great art and gotten good jobs and found success in himself and he has a new girlfriend. And when I look at him, I'm not thinking, oh wow, I resent you for building up this person and then giving it to somebody else. I'm happy for him because he deserves good love. And if you truly, truly love somebody, then you want to see them happy whether it's with you or not. Unconditional love does not require gripping and suffocating relationships that are ready to change and ready to transform into something else, and it may be something better. And I know that you think this might be the guy that I want to marry nine years down the line. And maybe nine years down the line, he'll want to be with you again. But maybe nine years down the line, you'll be a different person that doesn't want him. And hopefully at that point, you can still be friends. Because if love is truly from a genuine place and it's truly unconditional, then it becomes whatever you need it to be for the person that you are at the time. But if you don't let him go now, when you're in this moment of clarity, when you know that you want to be single, which you plainly stated, then you're going to risk the possibility that he'll sense your distance and that it'll deeply hurt him. And then you might sever ties completely and there will be no possibility for love to transform into friendship or something better. And so I would say just be honest with him, be honest with yourself and trust the process because it's a long life inshallah and and down the line he may be your lover he may be your friend or he might not be in your life at all and you'll just have to keep the memory of his love close and honestly that too is a blessing so that's all the time that we have for today it's been moving as ever i'm so excited about the next two episodes episode eight especially because it's going to be our valentine's day episode and i'm only going to answer questions about love and romance but until then i'm wishing you nothing but peace prosperity and purpose happy february may it be filled with more life real life i'm bianca vivion and this is ask viv on my face It's a good night How it smells nice On my pillowcase And I light all up When I see you walking by I know that life ain't perfect But you make it alright Oh, I see you coming Got my heart jumping like Jordans Play me like Spartan Do it all for me Show you the vision of what I like and I promise I'll be yours Tell me your joys and your problems I'll be more than a man for you I'll be your friend oh, I'll be, I'll be.